This is lesson three of our study on the marks of a healthy church. We're going through Mark Dever's book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I've added three, and I'm introducing these added marks uh, kind of as we progress uh, through our study of the Nine Marks book. And in fact, we come to one of the added marks uh, today. So the title of the, um, the lesson is Bonus Mark Number 1, Catechetical Teaching. There's no suggested reading associated with this uh, lesson. I will be recommending a book to you, though, as we go through this together. Um, I hope it doesn't come across as disrespectful that I'm adding these marks. I mean no disrespect to Mark Dever. I think his book is a fine book. You have to pick a number, right? Uh, You could go on and on and on and list all sorts of marks of a healthy church. Uh, He has nine. He's obviously um, uh, rethought some things over the years. Remember I shared with you last week that the outline that I gave for the class was um, off because I didn't realize the older editions had different chapter titles in some cases. Uh, so he's, he's amended some things over the years. Uh, and here I'm bringing to you three bonus marks throughout our study uh, for a total of 12. And these really have to do with um, marks that we have come to hold dear as Reformed Baptists. Um, these are kind of Reformed Baptist marks that I'm adding as we progress through this class. Let's open in a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll move through the lesson outline for today. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the Lord's Day. We are so refreshed by it. It's such a privilege to gather together as your people and to consider the truth of Holy Scripture and to fix our minds in a pronounced way upon you, upon the Christ that you have sent, and upon the work that he has finished for us. I thank you for the church, O Lord. I thank you that we do not walk in this world as individuals alone, but you have called us to walk in community, for you have redeemed for yourself a people. And this is a great blessing to us, O Lord, for so many reasons. I pray that you would help us in this time to fix our minds and hearts upon the truth of the the Word of God. I pray that you would build your church up strong and true. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The first section of the outline for today is entitled, Some Possible Limitations of Expositional Preaching. I hope that doesn't sound like heretical to you. Um, the, 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 the method of preaching that we are devoted to uh, the most is expositional preaching. I think it is wonderful, and I agree that that ought to be the norm, to preach through the Scriptures expositionally, meaning that we take one passage of Scripture at a time, and we Uh, seek to understand the true meaning of it, the meaning is explained, and then some application is uh, suggested. I I agree that that is the best method of preaching, to move sequentially through the pages of Holy Scripture. Um, But I think there are some possible limitations to it that we need to be aware of. So let me move through this section. Be patient with me if that is offensive to you. I don't know if it is for anybody here. But um, though it is true that all Scripture is inspired by God... So we confess that to be true. All Scripture is inspired by God. And though it is true that all Scripture is profitable to the believer, so everything from Genesis to Revelation is beneficial to the believer, it ought to be regarded as the inspired Word of God. It ought not to be neglected. Number three, though it is true, though it is good for the Scriptures to dictate what is preached instead of the preferences of the preacher slash people, remember that was a point that Dever made last in the last chapter that we considered, that topical sermons, one of the dangers there, if, if topical sermons are always preached, is that it could just be the, the preferences of the preacher that dictate 
what is preached in the church. When we move through the scriptures expositionally, the scriptures kind of force us to consider things that we might never uh, consider otherwise. So, uh, topical preaching, if that is the norm, it may be that the, script, the, the pastor has certain preferences that he's always going back to. Uh, we might call them hobby horses, you know, that he's always coming back to. Notice I also mentioned the preferences of the people. Uh, sometimes pastors fall into this trap of kind of reading the congregation and allowing the, the preferences and pleasures of the congregation to dictate what it is that, uh, that is preached. Or even worse, I think, trying to read the culture. What will appeal to the culture and we'll preach on that. Uh, that is very dangerous. We need to let the Word of God dictate what it is uh, that we preach. So I wanted to acknowledge that all three of these things are definitely true. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is profitable to the believer. And it is good that the Scriptures dictate what is preached instead of the preferences of the preacher slash people. But it is also true, point B, that some passages of Scripture are more foundational than others. Would you agree with this? All passage, uh, Some passages of Scripture are more foundational and important uh, to the life of the believer and to the, to the substance of the Christian faith than others. Our confession actually acknowledges this uh, in its chapter on, on Holy Scripture, the very first chapter of our confession. I mean, I don't think anyone here would argue with me that um, Genesis chapters 1 through 3, I don't know, I'm just picking that at random, um, contain more foundational Things than certain portions of the book of Numbers, for example. Is Numbers inspired by God? Yes. Is it important? Yes, in its own way. Is it beneficial to the people of God? Yes, in its own way. But it doesn't carry quite the same weight in terms of uh, presenting foundational content to us as Genesis chapters 1 through 3 or the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or, or pick some other text. So some passages of Scripture are more foundational than others. It is also true that some doctrines contained in the Holy Scriptures are more foundational than others. And it is also true that the Scriptures, those, though filled with variety, tell one story, the story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, center on Christ, see Luke 24, have one goal or end, that is to say, uh, the glory of God. Here I'm trying to draw your attention to the fact that though all Scripture is inspired by God and useful to the believer, some are more, some portions of Scripture are more foundational than others. And also we have to be able to back up from the individual texts of Scripture to recognize that there is one story that is being told here. Therefore, my point is this, expositional preaching must be gospel-centered, uh, the message or word about salvation must be proclaimed. Two, Christ-centered, for He is the Savior, the object of our faith. And three, to the glory of God, for this is the end for which we are made. So here I'm still talking about expositional preaching. Do you remember how I did uh, speak to this last week to say that just as there are good and bad topical sermons, there could also be good and bad expositional sermons, sermons uh, that are not... Uh, centered upon the gospel, centered upon Christ uh, and to the glory of God, even if they are expositional, you know, in name, if they are not these things, then they are really not good expositional uh, sermons. And here I get on to my actual point about the limitations of expositional preaching. Expositional preaching ought to be complemented by doctrinal preaching slash teaching. Okay, so 
here I am saying that yes, it is good for us to move through passages of Scripture in a very orderly way. We ought to allow the Scriptures to dictate what is taught. But it is not wrong for us to maybe veer a little bit more towards the Gospels than to the book of Numbers. I'm not opposed to preaching through the book of Numbers, mind you. I think it's important for these books to be preached. But it's also reasonable for us to spend more time, perhaps, in in the Gospels, for example, than in books like that. Uh, And when we do preach through books like that, we might move through them more quickly, at least certain sections of them, you know, those long lists of genealogies, etc. I'm trying to draw your attention to that reality. Also, I'm trying to draw your attention to the reality that it is right for us to tell the story of redemption whenever we preach on any given text. And that might feel somewhat topical, right, as we back up from the text and bring in the biblical context and uh, emphasize the story of redemption that is told there. Um, But here I am also saying that we're to study the Scriptures in such a way where we are drawing out of them the major doctrines of the Christian faith and presenting them to the people of God. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, says London Baptist Confession, chapter 1, paragraph 1. This is indeed our conviction. It is the very first thing that is said in our confession of faith. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Point two, the study of Scripture ought to lead to doctrinal formulation. What do I mean by this? Um, When we study the the Scriptures, uh, not only are we to explain individual texts, but we're to compare text with text and we're to ask the question, what does the whole Bible tell us about these very important themes? Biblical theology and the study of Scripture ought to lead us to doctrinal formulation. And in some circles, this is a very unpopular thing. I think there are some who are very much opposed to systematic theology, the systematization of of, of doctrine. Uh, They want us to study the Scriptures only, but never to come to conclusions about um, important matters uh, as it pertains to the doctrine of God or Christ or man or salvation. Uh, So the study of Scripture ought to lead to doctrinal formulation, and core biblical doctrines must be taught, for these doctrines are the Christian faith objectively considered. I want you to see, uh, brothers and sisters, that the word faith is used in two different ways in in the Scriptures and and in the New Testament. Uh, The word faith is used in two different ways. What do you usually think of when you hear the word faith? Say, say it. Belief. Belief. I, I thought I heard the word trust as well. So you usually think of faith in a subjective sense. That is uh, your personal uh, faith or, or trust or belief in Christ and in, and, and in God. Oftentimes the word faith is used in that way. But it is used in another way too in the New Testament. Sometimes the word faith is used to describe the body of Christian doctrine that has been handed down to us uh, from Christ and the apostles uh, generation after generation. Where do, where do we come to, to have, where do we come to um, find this, this body of doctrine uh, that we might call the faith? You see, I use the definite article there to refer to the faith. Obviously, it arises out of the pages of Holy Scripture. We we get it from the Bible. 
But there is such thing as the faith, not just our faith, our subjective trust and belief in, in God and in Christ, but there is such thing as the faith, and this is objective doctrine that is to be taught. This is something that is to be proclaimed, uh, promoted, defended, uh, and we need to recognize that the Scriptures speak about uh, this reality. Listen to Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is Jude referring to here? Are we to contend for uh, our subjective faith? Is that what he is uh, referring to here? Um, Certainly we are to persevere in faith, that is our personal belief and trust in God. But that is not what Jude is referring to here. He's, he's writing to the believer to contend for the faith that was for once for all delivered to the saints. He, he's appealing to the church to, to defend the body of doctrine that was handed down to them uh, by Christ and His apostles. Defend it, he's saying. Make sure that it's taught and proclaimed and defended faithfully now that is what Jude is referring to here. Acts 16.5 also makes mention to this, and I just picked a couple of texts to share with you. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. I think this is also a reference to the objective faith, that is to say the Christian faith, this, this body of doctrine, this way of life, this, this, um, this system of uh, a doctrine that was handed down to the Second Corinthians thirteen five also makes reference to this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Test to see whether you are in the faith. Of course, this obser- this involves a personal trust or belief in Christ. But notice how often, or, or how 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 much. Time and ink is spilt by Paul and others to contend for sound doctrine in the pages of the New Testament. I mean, he's often very, uh, very much uh, zealous to, to put away all false teaching and to uphold the truth of the gospel, um, objective uh, doctrine, the, the, the true faith. I mean, read Galatians, you see how eager he is to put away this notion that salvation comes to us. Uh, through uh, things like circumcision. He wants us to know that salvation is through faith alone, in Christ alone. Galatians 1.23, lastly, They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So there is a clear reference to um, Christian doctrine. This, this Paul, who used to perse- persecute Christians, is now going around and he's preaching something, What is he preaching? The faith that he once tried uh, to destroy. I I wonder if you can see my point. It is good for us to preach and teach teach expositionally, to work our way through, let's say, uh, the book of Exodus or the Gospel of Luke, very slowly going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. Uh, And of course, when that is done, certain doctrines will be emphasized. But I think it is also good for us to back up from the the text of Scripture uh, so that we can see the forest and not be so focused on the trees, so as to proclaim, to teach 
the Christian faith that has been handed down to us uh, from Christ and the apostles generation after generation. If alls we do, in other words, is preach expositionally, then it will be difficult for us to explain or teach the faith in a thorough and careful way. Do you agree with this? I, I hope that you do. Um, and as I was thinking about this, I, I do love expositional preaching, but I think expositional preaching and a, a, a strict devotion to it might actually go kind of hand in hand with this biblicistic tendency that we are seeing in our day. What is biblicism? What is biblicism? Does anyone know? It sounds good. Shouldn't we be biblicists, right? Because after all, we believe in the Bible. We believe it is uh, our authority for truth and inspired by God. So it almost sounds weird to critique biblicism, but it is a real problem, I think. I think it's a very bad thing, a very damaging thing, believe it or not. What is biblicism, Scott? It can't be described specifically in verse, then it's not Okay, so if you're teaching some doctrine but you can't present a single verse or maybe a, a passage you know, that, that teaches that doctrine, then, then whatever you're teaching is not to be believed, right? That, that's biblicism. Chad, did you have another? I was going to say it's kind of an Okay, so it's an aversion to systematic theology, that is true, and also biblicists don't like it if you uh, use words to describe your doctrine that are not found in the Bible. Um, what's the obvious retort and comeback to the biblicists? What, what, what's the obvious example to put before them? Trinity. Everyone says it at once. The Trinity. <laughs> you know, you know. And it, it's true. It, it's the easiest thing to put before them to say, well, do you believe that God is triune? Uh, can you show me one passage of Scripture that teaches it? No, can't find it. Uh, and also, is the word Trinity found within the Bible? No. So it is the easy uh, thing to put back in front of the biblicists. Uh, but there are many other things too. Um, I, I, I think that the, the problem is this, the Bible is not meant to be read in that biblicistic way. It, it, it tells a story and, and we're to consider the whole, and we are to uh, study the Bible in such a way where it leads us to make doctrinal formulations. And by that I mean we, we collect everything that the Bible says and we come to firm conclusions about what the Bible teaches, all things considered. Now, there have to be limits to that too. You know, we can go too far in that, but, it, but at the same time I think we do a great disservice to the church uh, when we do not formulate doctrine, when we do not come to firm conclusions about God and about Christ and about sin and salvation in Him. Yes, yeah, Scott, did you have a thought? Yeah, just real quickly. Um, in, in the temptation, when, when Satan is using Scripture and then Jesus is using Scripture, yeah. I think that's a great example of, of what you're saying. Satan is using a proof text wrongly, right? Yes, yes. And Yeah, that's a great example. Um, Satan was quoting Scripture when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and I'm repeating it for the sake of the recording. Uh, Satan was using Scripture when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, but he was 
misusing Scripture. He was pulling Scripture out of context, which, which, which can easily be done. And yet Jesus was quoting Scripture in return, but He was doing it properly, interpreting Scripture in the light of the whole. Uh, so that brings to mind an, another one of the air of, of the Biblicists that hasn't been mentioned yet. Uh, some Biblicists will say, well, if the Bible says it, then we are bound to believe it in a very strict and wooden sense. Um, there are, for example, Scripture texts that say that God is enthroned in heaven. God is enthroned in heaven. So does that mean that God is not omnipresent? Have you ever thought about that? He's enthroned in heaven, the Scriptures say. Therefore, we cannot confess omnipresence because the Scriptures say He's there and not necessarily here. Um, right? And Biblicists have, uh, have made that error uh, in, in the past. Um, at the Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference we had last November, one of the texts that we uh, considered uh, was written by a man named Thomas Collier. And I forget the title of it right now. It's escaping me. But he was a Biblicist, and he made lots of theological errors. And in fact, our confession of faith came to be partly because the particular Baptist in the 17th century had to respond to this heretic, Thomas Collier, who used to be one of them. Uh, he was claiming to be a particular Baptist, or he was known as such, and yet he was promoting heresy. So our particular Baptist forefathers had to respond to him in print to correct his errors and to make it clear that we did not believe what he was saying, that that was their objective. But he actually made this argument. He, he was denying the um, omnipresence of God uh, by interpreting these texts of Scripture that say that God is enthroned in heaven. We must believe it. That's a Biblicistic error. What's the problem? Yes, this, the text says that God is enthroned in heaven, but there are other texts, here we go, that say He is omnipresent. So obviously, when we come to the texts that say that He's enthroned in heaven, it has a particular meaning to it. Uh, there is where God manifests His glory in a particular or pronounced way before the angels in heaven. That is true. But He, he is all places at all times also. It's just that His glory is not manifest in that same way. Do you see how we just did systematic theology there? How we took two texts of Scripture that say things that seem to be contradictory and we, and, and, and we bring them together and go, ah, I see. They're not contradictions. They just seem to be at first, but they can come together so long as we understand this text in this way and this text in that way. Um, same thing with the doctrine of the Trinity. There are some texts of Scripture that emphasize that there is only one God and that He is one. There are other texts that seem to indicate that this one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, we have to, we have to work this out. We have, to do doctrine, we have to do doctrine, we have to do theology, and we have to come to conclusions. It, and, and yet there just seem to be so many in our day who are unwilling to come to conclusions. Um, there are doctrines that talk about God being sovereign over things, about Him predestinating, and yet there are other texts that seem to emphasize man's responsibility and man's freedom. We have to bring these texts together and systematize them so that we believe things that are true. And the point I'm making this morning is that if we're strictly devoted to expositional preaching, it can be difficult to do this kind of thing. It can be difficult to teach and preach these sound doctrines to the church um, consistently. And, and you know our approach has been to not only preach and teach expositionally, we do that primarily on the Lord's Day morning, but you're sitting right now in a Sunday school class, and what have we been doing in Sunday school or Emmaus Essentials all these years? 
except considering topics together. We've been considering topics, and teaching has been delivered to you in a systematic way so that you uh, can have a firm grasp on the faith. And then what do we do on the Lord's Day afternoon? Our custom has been to preach and teach catechetically, where the Christian faith, which is summarized and presented in our catechism, is presented to the people of God once every two years. So we go over these major themes so as to be sure that the faith is taught and even defended a year after year before the people of God. Does that make sense? Um, I think expositional preaching does have its limitations, as good as it is. Uh, and so we ought to be willing to do other things as well, to preach and to teach theologically. I am taking a bit of a walk down memory lane in this class. Uh, remember I told you that Devers' book was in my hand before we planted Emmaus, and so it's been fun to read it and to think, ah, yes, this was influential and impactful uh, to me all those years ago. And, and, and look at what it has led to. Uh, we, have, we have followed this course. We've grown beyond it in some ways. We still have some more growing to do in other ways. So it's been fun to read Dever's book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, uh, given our history. Uh, but as I was preparing for this uh, lesson today, I was reminded of another book that was in my hand way back when. And it is a book written by Kevin D. Young called The Good News We Almost Forgot with a byline recovering or rediscovering the gospel in a 16th century catechism. Now, as I go back in time, I'm remembering that I did not know that there was such a thing as Reformed Baptists in those days, believe it or not. Going back 12 years ago, I didn't know there was such a thing as Reformed Baptists. I was completely ignorant of particular Baptist history. I, I didn't know that there were Reformed Baptist churches in Southern California. I didn't know there was IRBS Theological Seminary back then, that there was a Southern California Association. In fact, when we uh, left our previous church and planted this one, a Calvinistic and Baptistic church, I felt like we were all alone. Some of you are remembering these days uh, right now. But I did read this book by Kevin D. Young prior to planting Emmaus, and I'm remembering that it was my first exposure to a Protestant and Reformed catechism. It was my first exposure to a Protestant and Reformed catechism. Before reading this book, I thought that catechisms were for Roman Catholics. A lot of you thought that way too. So I thought, this is, this is interesting. It was my first exposure. It's, it's incredible that that was only 12 years ago or so. Now, D. Young is a minister in the Reformed Churches of America, RCA, or at least he was. I, I assume he still is. I haven't followed him. Huh? Okay. I wondered. He's PCA now. The RCA has gone in some very interesting directions. Um, interesting in a bad way. Um, so I'm not surprised that he left for, for a more confessionally uh, sound denomination. He's PCA now, Scott says. Um, but he wrote this book, 2010-2011, and he was obviously concerned that his denomination at the time had forgotten or was forgetting their theological heritage. Uh, and so he was reminding them of one of their 
documents, the, the Heidelberg Catechism. In the tradition I was a part of, we didn't have a clearly articulated theological heritage, and so this book was very impactful for me. I thought, this is rich. Where has this sort of thing been all my life? And I remember that in ministry in those days, we were always in search of curriculum to be used for discipleship, (laughs) um, not knowing that the church has had a tried and true way of discipling new believers uh, throughout the history of the church, and that is through the use of catechisms. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm reminiscing, thinking, yeah, we were always in search of, 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 of curriculum, the, the newest thing, the, the, the next and best thing uh, to come out. And so when I was exposed to these documents from church history, I thought, where have these things been all of my life? They're, they're so rich, they're so, so useful, they're so true and polished and succinct and warm and filled with wisdom. And so it was a great thing uh, to be exposed to them. I would, I would uh, recommend this book to you by Kevin DeYoung, The Good News We Almost Forgot. It's very simple. It's a daily devotional, or maybe not daily, but weekly devotional on uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, we have a Baptist version of the Heidelberg Catechism. It, it's not as well known as the Baptist Catechism, which we use. It's called the Orthodox Catechism. Make sure you don't pick up the Catechism for the Orthodox Church, uh, but rather the Orthodox Catechism it was put together by Hercules Collins. And it's a Baptist version of the Heidelberg. So it's mainly the same as the Heidelberg. There are some changes made to its section on, on baptism. It's wonderful. I, I think it, it really hasn't been adopted by Reformed or particular Baptists uh, because it does have some disputed doctrines in there about, I think, hymn singing and the laying on of hands. They're minor things, honestly. It's a very wonderful document. I think I, I would commend it to you, but it hasn't been adopted by particular Baptist churches um, so enthusiastically because it does contain some minority opinions in it, or at least they were minority opinions at the time. Um, but it's a wonderful and rich document. Have, have, has anybody ever read through the Heidelberg Catechism? It, it's beautiful. Or the Orthodox Catechism for Baptists. It's just, it's beautiful. It is filled with such warmth. Um, the questions and answers tend to be longer, more difficult to memorize. It's not as succinct as the Baptist Catechism, but it is filled with, with warmth. Uh, just some, some wonderful truths presented in this catechism, and I would commend it to you. We use the Baptist Catechism because it is more succinct, it's, it's easier to memorize, it, it's more to the point, I think, in some ways. That's how I'm putting it here. And as you know, these catechisms, uh, the ones that are true to Scripture, uh, they draw their content from the Scriptures. Uh, they teach the Christian faith, or present the Christian faith through a series of questions and answers. They are Brief, they are not exhaustive. They deal with core issues, uh, foundational issues. They don't touch upon everything that we might talk about as we consider the Holy Scriptures and systematic theology. They're brief, they're not exhaustive. They touch upon the core tenets of the faith. They are carefully ordered as well. They are very wonderful and useful tools for the people of of God. And we at Emmaus have been greatly blessed uh, by regularly using the Baptist Catechism Uh, in this congregation. I did send you a link 
uh, on the realm uh, just a moment ago. It's a link that I've shared with you before. It's a link to our Baptist catechism. Um, but I've outlined it here for you. There's even bookmarks on, on the top, kind of a, a table of contents, as it were. And, and I wanted to draw your attention to this and to take the opportunity to overview the, the outline of the Baptist Catechism uh, with you this morning. Uh, just briefly, I want you to see the structure of it. I, you could ask my wife, my poor wife, you know. Uh, I get all excited about things. Actually, this is hanging on our refrigerator right now. Um, I said, just look at this. Isn't this beautiful? This is just marvelous. Look at the structure. Look at the way that the faith is summarized here. Look at the way that the gospel is presented. And, you know, she, actually, I, I, I tease. She, she does enjoy this kind of conversation. We have really good conversations about this stuff. But she could testify to the fact that I nerd out about this. I get excited about it. Questions 1 through 6 of the Baptist Catechism deal with what we might call first things foundational principles about who God is and about where it is that we go to find truth. Um, question 6 of the Baptist Catechism asks what things are chiefly contained in the Holy Scriptures after insisting that the Holy Scriptures are our authority for truth. Question 6 is, is kind of a hub. It asks what things are chiefly contained in the Holy Scriptures and the answer given is the Holy Scriptures chiefly contain what man ought to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. It's, it's kind of a foundational question in our catechism because it introduces the content that follows. The rest of the catechism is going to tell us these two things. What should we believe about God and what duty has God required of us? And so the rest of the catechism and the outline that I have provided is broken into these two parts. Question 7 through 43 deal with the question, what man ought to believe concerning God? And then questions 44 through 114 deal with the question, what duty has God required of man? So the whole catechism can be broken into those two big categories with the first six questions being introductory but I think it is fascinating to see how th these two things are addressed. And it's interesting to see how the gospel is presented in these two sections, each in, in, it, in their own way. Questions 7 through 15 of the Catechism introduce God, His nature, decrees, creation, providence, and covenant to us. Questions 16 through 20 deal with Sin, man's alienation from God by his fall into sin. You say, well, I thought this section was about what we ought to be believe concerning God. Well, yes, we, we are asking the question, what is our relationship to God? You see, it's about God, um, given our fall into sin. Questions 23 through 31 talk to us about the redemption that God has accomplished for us through Christ. Questions 32 through 43 talk about the redemption that God applies to His elect through the working of the Holy Spirit. It, it's really wonderful to consider. It's Trinitarian, you see. Uh, we are learning all about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're learning what we are to believe about God in that respect. Who is God or what is He? But also we're learning about what God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done in order to redeem fallen sinners and to reconcile them to God. And so in 
this section where we talk about the application of redemption by God through the Spirit, we learn about effectual calling unto faith in Christ, questions 32 through 34. We learn what those effectually called are saved unto, namely the benefits of salvation in questions 35 through 41. And then we learn about what those effectually called are saved from, uh, that is the miseries of damnation in questions 42 and 43. So, I like to point this out. In this section here, questions 7 through 43, not only do we learn about God and our relationship to Him and redemption in Him, uh, but we also are told the story of salvation in a redemptive historical way. We, We learn about the decree of God in eternity past. We learn about the promise of the Messiah. We learn about the arrival of the Messiah and His finished work on the cross, and we learn about the application of the redemption He has earned to us by the Holy Spirit in time. So it's, it's teaching us about God, it's teaching us about the Trinity, it's teaching us about God's decree, it's teaching us about the, the, the accomplishment of our redemption in such a succinct way. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this, uh, brothers and sisters, to hopefully reinvigorate you uh, as it pertains to the use of this catechism, both in the church corporately and, and in your homes. The Christian faith is presented here. The gospel is presented here in a beautiful way, first in a redemptive historical way, in questions 7 through 43. Questions 44 through 114 ask and answer, what duty does God require of man? What does God require of us? And so in questions 45 through 89, we have a prolonged consideration of the Ten Commandments, of God's moral law. We're in the middle of that now in our catechetical preaching on the Lord's Day afternoon. It's a wonderful presentation of the Ten Commandments. Um, what, does, what, what is this commandment? What does it say? What does it require? What does it forbid? Uh, you know all about that pattern because we're in the midst of it. But in questions 90 through 114, the Gospel is presented to us beautifully. Um, first of all, After asking the question, um, do we keep this law? And the answer being, no, we violated in thought, word, and deed. Well, what does does our sin deserve then? Condemnation. Well, how do we escape this wrath of God? How do we escape this condemnation? Faith in Christ. So here's the gospel presented in, in questions 90 through 114. First, we are urged to faith in Christ and and repentance in questions 90 and 92. And then in questions 93 through 114, the outward and ordinary means of grace are presented to us. Beautifully, the outward and ordinary means of grace are presented to us. First of all, we learn about the Word of God as a means of grace. Then baptism in questions 96 through 101. Then the Lord's Supper in 102 through 104. And then finally, our catechism concludes with a wonderful section teaching us all about the Lord's Prayer. It just it blows my mind, the, the, the order, the structure of this, how beautifully the Christian faith is presented, how beautifully the gospel is presented, how beautifully the Christian life is introduced to us. It's, it's really marvelous. So, in questions 7 through 43, the gospel is presented in a redemptive historical way. Uh, creation, fall, redemption in Christ Jesus, the application of it to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's that story of redemption, redemptive historical presentation of the gospel. But in questions 44 through 114, the gospel is presented again, but in a different way, in a law gospel way. When I say law gospel way, what do I mean by that, brothers and sisters? I've been talking a lot. When I say let's present the gospel in a law gospel way, what does that mean? 
Anyone? Okay, so first presenting God's law in the form of commandments. And then what do we want to stress? When we, when we preach God's law, what are we going to stress about it? We fail to keep it. Uh, and I think this is a very good way to do evangelism. It's not the only way. I think we need to do evangelism in a redemptive historical way. But, but yes, you can go up to someone and you could ask them, are you right with God? Yeah, I think I'm right with God. I'm a pretty good person. Are you? Okay, can we go through the God's moral law together, the Ten Commandments? You can take this approach, right? So you've never told a lie. No, I, I guess I have. So you're a lawbreaker then. You're guilty. You're a sinner. You deserve God's wrath, His condemnation. You know, you, you've, never, you've never lusted in your heart, or on and on we go. And so with the law, using the law, you prove that we're all sinners. And then the question is, what, what can we do to escape God's wrath and curse due to us for sin? And then you hold forth the gospel. See, someone has come and he's kept the law on your behalf. He died in, your, well, he died in the place of sinners. He, he, he rose again in victory. Salvation is available to all who have faith in Him. You see, that's presenting the gospel in a law gospel sort of way. Redemptive historical too, it comes in because we're talking about the history of redemption and the accomplishment of it. But, but you get it. And I'm just wanting you to see, brothers and sisters, how rich our catechism is, how it presents the Christian faith to us in a very succinct way, but in a very systematic way so as to hold forth Christ, to hold forth the way of salvation to us. And, and so I, I do hope that you understand why uh, we are going through this catechism uh, over and over and over again as a congregation. How many times have we been through it? Does anybody know? I'm, I'm trying to think. We're on a two-year track. I can't remember when we started. I'd say we're at least on our fifth journey uh, through the Baptist catechism uh, together. And it's been uh, a rich blessing to us. So what are some potential uses for catechisms in general, or the Baptist catechism in particular in our instance. Uh, First of all, catechisms, like the Baptist catechism, can be used to prepare for baptism, and they could also be used in the discipling of new believers. This has been the practice of the church throughout the history of the church. People would be catechized in preparation for baptism. They'd be catechized in preparation for baptism, and they would even be catechized afterwards, because after, after all, we are called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. So catechisms are useful in this process. They are useful in the home. Um, husbands and wives can use catechisms Together, individuals can use catechisms. Uh, Parents could use catechisms to instruct their children. They are useful in the church also through catechetical preaching and teaching. The faith must be proclaimed so that it is not forgotten. The faith must be proclaimed so that it is not distorted. The faith must be proclaimed so that young and old might further grow in the truth. So I'll take the opportunity to do something that I'll do in the announcements, I think, this morning as well. And that is to urge you to be present in the second service where catechetical preaching and teaching is delivered. You might be tempted to say, I've been a Christian a long time. I don't need to hear this. 
but you do. Uh, you do need to hear this. There are things that perhaps you've been forgotten that you need to be reminded of. There are misunderstandings that you have uh, harbored that need to be corrected. Also, your presence here is important because you need to see that we are doing something together as a congregation, namely, as a church, even if you already know this or that thing, as a church, what are we doing? We are holding up the Christian faith together. We are, we are taking the Christian faith and we are proclaiming it. We are holding it up so that it might be proclaimed to do, those who do not yet know and so that it might be preserved. Just a minute ago, I made a comment about the RCA and, and I don't regret it. Um, de Young left it. I, I hear about what's going on in some of these RCA churches, even in our area, and it is so sad. The good news we almost forgot was forgotten by many within the RCA and the results have been disastrous for those congregations and for that denomination. Uh, this Christian faith was not upheld, promoted, and preserved. And there are lots of instances of that all around us, other denominations too that have forgotten their roots. And so, even if you know this truth or that, together we ought to come and uphold uh, the Christian faith. And it is especially important that our young people be brought to hear catechetical preaching and teaching because uh, they are developing their uh, theology, their, their theological convictions even now. And so we as a congregation should be very much concerned to see the next generation uh, discipled in, in this way. I'm out of time. Let's uh, bow for a word of prayer and then we'll gather for morning worship in just about 15 minutes. Father in heaven, uh, I do pray that you would help us as a congregation to preach and teach the Christian faith effectively. Help us to teach those who believe and are baptized to observe all that you have commanded. Uh, Lord, we know that there are many things involved in this. Help us to love one another. Help us to exhort one another in Christ. Help us to pray for one another. But do help us also as it pertains to the proclamation of sound doctrine. Uh, may we be firmly rooted in the faith, O, o Lord. So fill our minds with truth and help us to live according to these truths, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.